Right to Democracy, How Cold War Institutions Secure Europe. Interview with John Shattuck, episode 53. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with John Shattuck, Professor of Practice in Diplomacy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He is an international diplomat and scholar. From representing the United States in a variety of human rights roles, an ambassador to the Czech Republic, and president and rector of Central European University in Budapest, where I got to know him, John has a steadfast adherence to human rights and holding positions that enable the United States and citizens, I'm not exaggerating, citizens of many countries to benefit from his dedication to public service. When I thought about who to speak to concerning Russia's threat to invade Ukraine, I thought about John. And to be honest, I don't know how to frame the pressures on our current international order. That sounds quite big and quite abstract. And we provide, I would say, this overview of Cold War pressures and really on the ground experiences that John has to describe and to examine the transition from from, I say, a communist-based system in Europe to one where we have democracy in the form of communist countries. It's, it's an incredible discussion we have this week. But nonetheless, the pressures we can see and feel in high oil and electricity and natural gas prices, these are putting pressure, of course, on the political and social systems. But we can't just look at the high energy prices because these are not necessarily the problem. There's something deeper there. And this is what I'm trying to get to in this interview and trying to get to in some other interviews I'm conducting is why, what are the pressures on the international order at the moment? I've described this in previous episodes as a carbon storm where the cost of energy increases for periods of time because of instability in energy markets and political actions. The current conflict around Ukraine has taken on the form of military tension between the NATO alliance and Russia. But as we explore in this interview, there are other factors at play, such as, such as the erosion of human rights, respect for democratic institutions, and the election of populists, and not just here in Europe, but of course the United States. I frame this interview in a broad macro perspective of what we can learn and understand from the Cold War. I think by understanding how and why the national and international institutions that we do have, we can better enable these institutions to continue on with their founding missions. Because John was on the ground in Europe and the United States, both during and after the fall of communism, we gain an informed perspective of the roots to the current international order and the points of instability shaking the system now. When we speak of the energy transition, it is often framed as a technological transition. The Cold War was cold because of the technology of nuclear arms. A direct war could not be fought because of the consequences. What we can learn about the politics and aspirations during and after the Cold War speaks to the need to be aware that politics and social movements do shape how people live and countries act. John tells the story at the start of this interview, and it, and it wonderfully underscores this point. Listen to this. And you'll understand how John began a life of public service that protected and exposed failings in the respect for human rights. At the end of the interview, John also brings up the benefits of person-to-person interactions as creating and sustaining the seeds to respect and protect peace. I think his role as president and rector of CEU, where he led the institution to educate thousands of international students, underscores just one part of his international legacy to the advancement of human rights. And now for this week's episode. 
This week, we are speaking with John Shattuck, who has more than 30 years of education and international diplomacy experience in his distinguished career. He is the former president and rector of Central European University, a amb- former ambassador to the Czech Republic, assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor, a vice president at Harvard, teaching at the Harvard Law School. And with that, I'm positive we'll get into all his different roles and many different experiences. But John, I just really want to thank you for coming on to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And the reason I I realize the podcast is about energy, but the reason I wanted to have you on is that I think when we dig deeper into the energy sector and the conflict and the I would say with with Russia, the EU, the United States, and certainly with Ukraine, if we dig deeper into that, we really get into the role of politics and international relation, diplomacy, and even, you know, how governments govern. And in this area, uh, I think you're really a key expert, and this is why I wanted to bring you on. But before we get into all that, and we see things shifting in Europe, um, you have such a distinguished career in human rights. And I, my first question is just, how did you become interested in human rights? And wh- why, why did that uh, propel your career in this direction? Well, I, it's a big, complicated question. Thank you. Um, but I think by and large, it boils down to sort of three <clears throat> influences. One was my own father, and I'll speak about that in a moment. Second was the civil rights movement, which I was involved in in the United States uh, in the 1960s. And uh, the third was the anti-Vietnam War movement in which I was involved as a young lawyer um, above and also one of the organizers. Uh, But uh, basically the roots of my interest in human rights come from deep into the 1950s, if you could believe it, although I'm not really that old. Anyway, uh, in the 1950s, when I was a very young boy, my father, who was uh, a relatively conservative Republican lawyer, uh, <clears throat> but a veteran of the Second World War and, a, and, and uh, who had lost many friends in the war, was deeply concerned about uh, what was happening in America, particularly in our own little town, as more and more people were being smeared uh, with accusations that they were communists or had been uh, connected with communism sometime a time in earlier periods. And you know that was very destructive uh, for people's careers, et cetera. And he felt that they deserved <clears throat> Uh, you know, an opportunity not only to defend themselves, but to be protected against these kinds of smears. And he described all this to me when I was, I think, about eight or nine, uh, because at one point, just to make it very um, personal, um, I went to school and, you know, I had all these little classmates who came up to me and they said, is your father a communist? <clears throat> and I didn't know what to make of that. And, you know, a communist was at that stage seemed to be a pretty bad thing to be. So I went home and asked him about this. Um, and <clears throat> he said, well, let me tell you what's happening here. Um, I've been defending somebody who is running for the school board in our community uh, who has been accused in the newspaper of being a communist. And she isn't a communist. She has a background where she probably knew a number of communists, but I'm defending her and I've gone to the school board and there was an article about me in the newspaper. So <clears throat> that 
brought home to me uh, that something really terrible can happen in a society uh, that doesn't have a commitment to human rights and civil liberties. I mean, I learned this over time. Later on, as I was uh, growing up and became uh, very active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s and, and later in the anti-war movement, uh, and particularly when I was a lawyer at the American Civil Liberties Union, I was defending uh, the rights of people to protest, uh, protest against segregation in the United States and protest against uh, the Vietnam War, which they felt was inappropriate and where uh, and wrong. And, uh, and these, these experiences really deepened uh, my interest and commitment to human rights. And that's really been the, the theme uh, of my whole career ever since, including some very specific positions that I've held, that the one of which you mentioned, the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights. I was also the Vice Chairman of Amnesty International uh, at one point uh, around the time of the changes in the Berlin Wall uh, and the, <clears throat> the end of the Cold War. But so I, I've been very much involved in, as, as a human rights activist, uh, as well as an academic uh, and uh, government official in mm -hmm. these areas. John, can I just ask you more another question about your father? It, it just sure. really struck a chord with me because my dad was a prosecutor, a county prosecutor, and he would always come home at dinner time and talk about you know all the things that went on that day and. Did you further have further discussions as you were growing up with your father about law and human rights and or how were they were interpreted at the local level? Yeah, very, yeah certainly I did. I, the one very specific conversation I can remember was, uh, again, when I was about eight years old, I think, and I came back from school with this uh, report that my classmates were asking me whether my father was a communist. He sat me down in a big red leather chair that he always liked to sit in, and I sat on the arm of the chair, and <clears throat> he proceeded to give basically a lecture appropriate for an eight-year-old about what, what this was all about. I mean, I, you know, I marvel at his ability because it stuck with me, and it really became a, a major uh, influence of, of, of my further development. Yes, we had many further conversations about this. You know, he and I didn't agree on a lot of things. I was much more liberal than he was. Uh, he was very much opposed to my, at least initially, my anti-war activism in the context of Vietnam. He thought it was Vietnam War, while it was may maybe not a good idea, it was certainly something that the president had decided that was in the U.S. national interest. So we, we differed about that. Uh, <clears throat> but it was interesting because way toward the end of his career, um, he became very interested in some of the th same things that, that I did. Actually, after he retired, I, he, he was uh, concerned about, and this will anticipate some of our conversations later, uh, what was going on in Bosnia, Rwanda. And these were places that I was deeply involved in as a government official. Um, and uh, he even traveled <laughs> to both Rwanda and wow. Bosnia because he... In a certain sense, I don't want to say I influenced him. That that would be a little bit uh, perhaps presumptuous on my part. However, he became extremely interested in the practical and diplomatic aspects of the promotion of human rights. And you know, it was at one point I remember going to 
Um, I, I was making a call to my colleague, Richard Holbrook, who was former Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs and very active in the, uh, in, in the effort to bring the end of the war in Bosnia. And I was working with uh, Dick Holbrook and I made a call to him and I got Holbrook on the phone and he was in, he was in Europe at the time and we'd had a talk about some of the things that he was doing that I needed to um, work with him on. And then he said, here, there's a guy here who'd like to talk to you. Let me pass the phone to him. <laughs> and who should show up on the phone but my father, who had actually got in touch with Holbrook and said, I, you know, I'd like to interview you about the work that you're doing. So that was kind of interesting. Wow. <laughs> Crossing paths, really. Yeah. Right. That's great. And so you brought, yeah, human rights. And this is my next question is about the impact of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I think you've been able to see the scope of it over de decades. And I feel like now it's not brought to the, the fore so much. At least when I was a student, we talked about it much more. Maybe it's just my, my interest right now is not so much in this area, but it doesn't seem to be so prominent. But and I, I'm thinking in the terms of the Cold War and then after that, that human rights were really key uh, to the development, I would say, of the peace after after the Cold War in Europe. And why are human rights overall uh, important to recognize and to still respect? Well, I think the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you're right, is a symbol. In many ways, it, it's not that it has a binding impact on countries around the world. Virtually every country has recognized it, uh, including China and others where there are deep differences between China and the West over human rights. Uh, but, it, but it symbolized uh, the beginning of the era of formal human rights legal principles. And they came out of the Nuremberg trials, which took place right after the Second World War, uh, where some of the Nazi leaders were <clears throat> tried, were put on trial for their role, particularly in, in the Holocaust, but also in, in starting the war as a, as a war of aggression. Um, and the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights was kind of a, you know, a call to the world they were not going to let this happen again, at least in theory. And not only that, but we're going to now construct a system of, of legal principles internationally based, which uh, to which governments and individuals are going to be held accountable. And again, all of this was pretty theoretical, but it became quite practical, especially after the end of the Cold War. Uh, during the Cold War, of course, it was very hard to get any kind of agreement uh, between the two great competing powers, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, in, the, in, in any context in the U.N. and the U.N. Security Council, which was almost always in gridlock because of the, the ideological conflict. But after the end of the Cold War, um, it became more possible to actually begin to implement some aspects of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, and in particular, with respect to uh, the war that took place in Yugoslavia, the Bosnia crisis, and the first genocide, real genocide in Europe since the end of the Second World War. And at that stage, and here I was very actively involved in this, uh, it was possible to create through the United Nations an international tribunal 
similar to the Nuremberg Tribunal in that sense, uh, to, to begin to try and hold accountable those who were responsible for genocide in Bosnia. Um, and that, that, was a, that was a major event. It doesn't mean that it's changed the world in any fundamental ways, but I would say the norms of human rights <clears throat> have been more broadly aired and accepted as a result of the Universal Declaration and this development of an international legal structure around human rights uh, than one might have certainly could have been the, ever the case before in the 1930s or, or earlier. There was, there was almost no concept of human rights that uh, was seen to be relatively universal, such as uh, the laws against genocide. And of course, there was an international convention uh, which was signed and ratified uh, by many nations, including the United States, a convention against the crime of genocide. And that itself became part of this legal structure. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we've had pl plenty of setbacks. I'm not trying to paint a positive, <laughs> positive picture overall, but still the structure is there and the norms uh, came into being around the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. And may maybe I, I ask you to bring in your experience on this and how, because how can it be seen on the ground? Because I, I feel like the, there's a lot of political shifts. There's a lot of political movements. I just don't, don't necessarily want to invoke what's happening in Hungary or in Poland, but, but it just generally, and there's, um, you know, kind of some discord in, in the Balkans again. And it just seems like we're entering a period. This is one reason I wanted to have you on. It just seems like we're entering a new period of international relations where human rights and the rights of individuals to, for example, vote uh, is going to be really tested. And maybe from your experience, how do people on the ground where you've really seen the impact where human rights were ignored, how, how do people, what are the people's expectations or are people aware when these rights are broken? Um, yes, <laughs> in a word. Certainly my experience uh, as an advocate, as an assistant secretary of state for human rights, as an Amnesty International uh, vice chair, et cetera, I've, I've seen and interviewed many, many people uh, who have been deeply affected by violations of human rights who, uh, you know, who are aware much more now than would have been the case, let's say, in the turn of the 20th century, way back in the 1900s, uh, early 1900s, about uh, the, the, what is happening to them. And the stakes are very high. There are also, uh, you know, movements for democracy and human rights that are worldwide uh, in that sense. They don't, they don't necessarily agree on all the specific details uh, of, of what a human rights agenda might be, but there, there are movements, grassroots movements of people. Sometimes those movements become, you know, national uh, liberation movements and they are highly political and, and, and therefore human rights can often be accused of being a, a, a political sword that get you, gets used by opponents of, of, a, of a particular regime. And I think today, uh, particularly in the West, in the United States, and in Europe, with the rise of nationalist populism um, and really the the concern that 
that millions of people have that the pace of change of society is so great that they're, they're afraid for themselves and they wanna protect what they have. So the nationalism and populism can often turn uh, into a kind of an anti-human rights agenda. And we've seen this certainly in the resistance in Europe to it, particularly in Hungary to uh, refugees uh, and uh, people fleeing from international conflicts. Uh, we've, we've seen it in the United States in the, in the rise of a, uh, you know, a, a new um, sort of white supremacy uh, movement, people trying to protect the, the, what they regard as the status of uh, certain types of people, white people primarily against minorities. Uh, all of this leads to huge human rights uh, abuse. And, uh, and the, the challenge is how to, uh, how to save the, the structure of human rights while recognizing that the, that the change is, is very dynamic and it's an, an, a change is gonna continue. Uh, and, uh, and to uh, try to assuage the fears uh, that so many people have of change. So you're right to say this is a, we're in a period of, of huge turmoil in the world. Uh, the, the geopolitical situation has changed enormously as a result of the rise of China. Uh, you know, the, the waning of, of U.S. Uh, hegemony in the world. And particularly, I think, as a result of some missteps that the U.S. has made in recent years. I think the the war on terror uh, immediately after 9-11 uh, and the intervention in Iraq and, and, and the very long war in Afghanistan. Uh, all of these things have, have sort of undermined to some extent U.S. geopolitical uh, uh, soft as well as hard power. And Europe at the same time, uh, while it's, it's developed, the European Union has developed uh, very effectively on an economic front uh, European security is, is very uncertain because there are no special European uh, security measures other than NATO, which is, of course, dominated by the U.S. So all, all of these trends in the world are causing particular disruption uh, around the rule of law and human rights. Uh, and I, we probably, in some ways, you've got a laboratory right there in Hungary that you're seeing with all of this going on. Yeah, John, it was a fantastic answer. I, and maybe, maybe we could put it in some more context about maybe the expectation of when, for example, the Berlin Wall fell and communism fell in the subsequent years. Um, and what, how, what was the expectation at that time of how Europe could develop, and then maybe you could progress into what happened in Yugoslavia. Mm. Well, you know, I, I like to put this, uh, the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the changes that took place in uh, Europe uh, in terms of two broad uh, themes that were at work. Um, and, and one was the forces of integration. Uh, where all of a sudden, yeah, it's possible to really develop much more integration across Europe. Uh, certainly the communications revolution was leading to much better communication among people. Obviously the growth, the, 
the, it, it happened to coincide with the with the rise of the internet and digital communication. Also, uh, economic uh, opportunities for integration, you know, cross-border movements of of uh, of capital and and investment, um, and uh, so integration looked very real. And it was in that context that the opportunities for the EU to expand and to develop partnerships and ultimately memberships with the countries of Eastern Europe uh, came about. Uh, but I, I'm afraid there were two, there were equally powerful forces uh, of disintegration that were at work at the same time. You know, the Cold War had kind of frozen relationships and even borders in certain uh, ways. Um, and once the Cold War ended, and these uh, borders disappeared and the opportunities began to exist for uh, disintegration to begin to take over, which is what happened, of course, in Yugoslavia, where, you know, after Tito, the government uh, basically fragmented and, the, and it became very much a, a set of nation uh, internal uh, nationalities and ethnicities that that held together around various parts of, of Yugoslavia. And then uh, because of <laughs> what happened with so many of the leaders who began to jockey for position and, and uh, particularly Milosevic and Tudjman, who was the who was the leader of Croatia, Milosevic, of course, in, in Serbia. Um, you know, they, they cynically began to stir up populism and nationalism and to get uh, people to, to act on their fears, to be afraid that, uh, that they were going to be taken over if they were Serb Orthodox by Muslims or if they were, uh, you know, Catholics in, 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 uh, in Croatia are going to be taken over by Serbs uh, who are Orthodox, etc. So you get this ethnic conflict began to develop. This is really getting into the fine tuning, if, if you want to call it that, of the forces of disintegration. And before you know it, um, and I was very much active in this period as a government official in the US government, you know, you had, as I said earlier, genocide committed in the heart of Europe. Uh, you know, you had in, <clears throat> over the course of the first two or three years after the end of the Cold War from 1991 to 93-94, you had over 150,000 uh, people who were slaughtered uh, in this huge amount of ethnic cleansing that was going on in Yugoslavia. Um, so th <laughs> this is the opposite of the forces of integration and the various things that began to help to expand the European Union and, and NATO, et cetera, uh, were all challenged uh, by what was happening in Yugoslavia. So that, that's, those, are the two, those are the two great battles, uh, the battle of integration to try to expand uh, opportunities and economic as well as political and democracy, et cetera, and uh, the battle of disintegration, which which was exemplified by what was happening in in Bosnia. And this battle, this battle of democracy, I, I like that as a as a category itself because it's super important now if we consider. But did it seem like 
okay, maybe in Yugoslavia and former Yugoslavia, it was a battle for democracy. But what about the former, you know, in Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, the former satellites of the Soviet Union? Did it seem like inevitable that they would become democratic? Or was it really a battle for democracy to make them transition towards a democratic system? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. And I think there was a lot of misunderstanding in that early post-Cold War period about how uh, democracy is brought about. Um, some people thought that it was really just going to be kind of inevitable, that it was, in, it was, it was simply once the opportunities were presented for democratic development, they would occur. Another group of people uh, thought that, no, they, this needed to be influenced by the outside, and it was possible to actually, uh, you know, have policies and promotion of democracy, particularly by Western Europe and, and the United States uh, in Eastern Europe was possible. And then a third group of people, uh, or through third sort of set of theories, were that, uh, no, this, you know, without any underlying uh, history of democratic development in a country, it, it's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's much easier to appeal to the historical trends of uh, authoritarianism, as certainly was in the case of a lot of Eastern Europe, uh, and that uh, the old oligarchs are, are going to return. So these three schools of thought <laughs> Uh, we're all at work in this uh, early post-Cold War period. And, um, you know, I don't want to say that they were right, but the third school ended up being pretty much where a lot of the development of democracy went in Eastern Europe, which is if there were, <laughs> if there was no um, receptive audience or no no historical roots of democratic development it wasn't likely to take hold and certainly it wasn't going to take hold if it was simply imposed by the from the outside and it's nice to think that it could develop spontaneously from within but without the historical roots it, it wasn't possible so what you had in all of eastern europe during this early coast wall post cold war period i think was you know, was, was, was experimentation with democracy and what looked like uh, democratic development that was occurring quite well. Hungary, uh, oddly enough, was seen to be at the forefront of this democratic development in the, in the early post-Cold War period. Um, but uh, <clears throat> that proved not to be the case, of course, and it was possible, and this is where nationalism and populism end up in a sense at odds with democratic development it was poss possible for a for a very uh, talented uh, opportunistic leader like Viktor Orban to come in and stir up the populism and uh, develop autocratic themes uh, what he called illiberal uh, democracy um, and you know and and with no historical roots to, 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 to any extent, the, the democratic development, unfortunately, for, for a time being anyway, uh, was pushed back. Now, I, I don't think that's permanent. I think it's quite possible that democracy uh, will continue to develop, uh, even in Hungary, um, but it's going to take longer. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think the U.S. 
uh, at least from my reading on things, had, with the expansion of the European Union into Eastern Europe, that the U.S. involvement shrunk and went down. For example, USAID was no longer active in the region. And now it, it seems like a bit of concern with, with Ukraine, for example, if Russia decides to invade or even just the pressure on Ukraine. You know, what is the interest of the United States? It seems like it hasn't been clear what the un- interest of the United States is in Eastern Europe. But uh, how, from your from your perspective, is the region lacking this engagement from the United States, and which has also resulted in some backsliding backsliding in democracy in the region? Well, you have to. <laughs> we're talking about a lot of things at the yes, same time. And uh, okay, so you're shifting the attention to the United States, and if that's the case, which is quite appropriate. We have to see what's happening in the United States before you actually look to see what the U.S. relationship to Eastern Europe is. And and the U.S. is going through its own uh, turmoil regarding democratic development. It has uh, a minority, and I think it is no more than that, maybe 30 percent, that is highly disruptive and is doing everything it can in the sense to to push back democratic development and secure uh, a more permanent, um, you know, non-democratic base for itself. Uh, that the Trump movement is obviously the, the at the heart of that, but it's broader than Trump. But it's only thirty percent, I think. And so there's a there's the U.S. has sort of turned inward on these issues and is focused less on uh, what it was doing immediately after the end of the Cold War, which is to to look uh, much more at the prospects of democratic development across Eastern Europe. Uh, Now, that said, um, it's important also when we look at the United States to recognize that there are many, many constituencies in the U.S. that are connected to Eastern Europe. There are Czech Americans and Hungarian Americans and Polish Americans. Romanian Americans, et cetera. Uh, and they all have, many of them are active in US politics and, and, and they have a great interest in those countries. Not necessarily an interest always in the promotion of democracy. It's more the connection with their, their own uh, family and, and, and uh, heritage roots in, in, the, in, in Eastern Europe. So the US is, is always going to be very, very connected. There are a lot of Ukrainian Americans too, by the way, and certainly a lot of Russian Americans. Um, so we, we, ha- we have a lot of interconnection in that respect. Uh, you know, I think the interest today, to put it in geopolitical terms, that the US has in <clears throat> Eastern Europe is uh, within the context of NATO, the U.S. is committed to defend uh, any NATO member uh, from outside uh, effort to overthrow it or interfere with it or invade it. So uh, the U.S. under Article 5 of the NATO founding treaty, uh, <clears throat> along with all the other NATO members, is committed to Eastern Europe's defense in particular. Um, I think that the, the you know, the you mentioned the USAID reducing its its, uh, you know, its budgets, et cetera, in, in, in areas of Eastern Europe. I, 
you know, I think the U.S. is is less engaged in the direct democratic development work that it was doing in the 90s uh, through these organizations like AID. But um, that doesn't mean that it's not interested. It's just distracted by its own problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, let's see, I'm looking at the questions. Um, does that, I mean, then you, br- you bring up NATO and maybe moving back to the expansion of NATO and the EU in, in this region, because the American, I would say American power is well projected through NATO and uh, European countries still look towards that American leadership through the organization there. And do you think with the threat of Russia, um, and of course, Russia's already been in Ukraine and taken military action there, just to be clear, but do you think this renewed threat of Russia against Ukraine has really prompted and elevated NATO, NATO's position and given it a new, new life in Europe? Yeah, I do. And in some ways, I would analogize to, the, to what we talked about a little earlier, which is the conflict in Yugoslavia. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, there was some question about the, the value of NATO. Why do we need this uh, security enterprise? The Cold War has ended. There's really no conflict, et cetera. And then uh, when Yugoslavia disintegrated and genocide was committed and great instability was created and lots of refugees were flowing across borders into Europe, it became clear that uh, NATO had a new role, a very important one. And it, it, uh, the role was a sort of peacekeeping role in Bosnia. And so it was, it was NATO and NATO forces that uh, essentially stabilized the Bosnian situation. And NATO was given a new lease on life. And had, had NATO not become involved in the conflict in Yugoslavia, I think NATO would have probably ceased to exist. So that brings us to Ukraine. Um, I think paradoxically, uh, the threat that um, Putin thought was going to divide the West uh, by assembling all these forces at the border and and issuing demands for a rollback of NATO, I, I think actually that threat has brought NATO back together again. And there's much more unity, I think, among NATO members as a result of Putin's threat uh, than in a more sort of normal time, if you will, earlier period. So, you know, I think I think that doesn't mean that NATO is going to have an, a, a formal uh, military role. One hopes not. Uh, on the other hand, NATO is available to defend all of the countries who are members of NATO in Eastern Europe and to challenge uh, the intervention, if it occurs, uh, of uh, Russian forces uh, into Ukraine uh, uh, and challenge that mostly through sanction, entirely through sanctions and through support of the Ukrainian uh, government's effort to defend itself. It's not going to use, we aren't going to put NATO troops in Ukraine. Ukraine, after all, is not a member of NATO. And there's extremely low likelihood that it will become a n- member of NATO. Uh, and that, after all, is at the heart of the of, of the diplomatic uh, standoff between uh, Putin and the West, uh, the West, U.S. and Europe and NATO 
uh, are not about to accede to Putin's demand that uh, a sovereign country be prohibited from pursuing its own self-interest uh, and, and be pre prevented from defending its borders, which is effectively what Putin is asking. So I think the, the, the West is, has united around this and NATO actually has been the instrument of unity. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think this conflict, and maybe we can bring it around to, to some themes we talked about earlier to, to wrap it up, but do you think this conflict then, yeah, re-energizes NATO and the mission of NATO and the purpose of NATO while also maybe bringing this uh, theme of self-determination, respect of human rights, back to the center as well. Yeah, I think to some extent, yes. Uh, I think certainly the, the, the democratic development, internal uh, sovereignty and opportunity to defend itself of, of uh, Ukraine um, are all being brought to the fore here. And, uh, you know, I, I think Russia... <clears throat> has uh, through Putin anyway, is, is essentially trying to push back that development and, the, and, this, and this assertion of um, the right to democratic self-determination, which is of course, in many ways at the heart of human rights. Uh, he's trying to push that back because he doesn't want that right on his doorstep uh, and feels that that might it's, itself uh, stimulate um, similar efforts in Russia. And so uh, that's, you know, that, that you can understand Putin's concern about this. On the other hand, the way he's gone about expressing this concern has only brought the human rights and, and democracy theme uh, further to the forefront and strengthened and revitalized uh, and reunified uh, the NATO alliance. And and um, I'm, I'm trying to bring the European Union in because what what is the role of the EU here? Because I mean we have NATO and in a sense this is a military conflict, so the defense has to be made. These types of things, but it still seems and and you know this as well. There's a lot of internal divisions within the EU, for example, and maybe this is less so, but still towards Poland, towards Hungary, who are uh, being seen as breaking the rule of law. Do you think this gives a renewed push for the European Union to draw on its values, its founding values, to ensure that there's coherency within the EU and, and not just in Eastern Europe, but I would say other countries as well? Well, I think the EU has a very major role to play here. I mean, even as we speak right now, uh, you know, the president of France, Macron, is in, is in Moscow meeting with, with Putin. And the European diplomatic initiatives, uh, which are seeking to reduce the tensions uh, so that something other than a military solution to this crisis can be found, uh, illustrate uh, the role of the EU. And the EU, I, I teach this at, at the Fletcher School. It's one of my courses, uh, US-EU relations. Uh, you know, the, e the EU <clears throat> is trying to assert to some extent, its own strategic autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the United States, and uh, you know, I think that's a that's a um, dynamic process, and Macron is very much part of that. In other words, it may be that the that the EU certainly EU member states, like all of the member states, uh, require and want to continue within the framework of NATO, but they also want 
because they have their own economic and even military power to some extent to be able to uh, assert themselves more effectively uh, on the international stage. And that's exactly what Macron is trying to do right now. It's a high wire act, it's risky. I mean, he could, it could all fall apart and he could look terrible. But uh, on the other hand, if he succeeds, I think it does uh, underscore the, the new maturity, if you will, of, of the EU and of Europe and European leaders in being able to operate within a framework of, uh, of US alliance, but uh, autonomously within that same framework. Now, when it comes to the member states of the EU that have become <laughs> Uh, seemingly more renegade, like Hungary and Poland, which are, uh, you know, which which are very much operating outside of the framework of EU core democratic values. Uh, uh, that's that's more problematic. What does the EU to do do to try to uh, uh, make sure that that its values uh, are respected throughout the EU? Now, what Orban and and Kaczynski and others would say is we want uh, we want strategic autonomy we want we want political autonomy uh, and you know the EU structures have not found a way of of imposing if you want to put it that way um, this kind of democratic um, uh, unity uh, and and the, you know the maintenance of democratic values. Uh, throughout the EU. So that's a that's a big problem. And I, I think the EU has got to find a way of solving that problem uh, or, um, you know, finding a different kind of relationship to these countries that are refusing to follow uh, basic democratic principles. Mm -hmm. uh, one way to do that, of course, would not would be to cut off the funding that these countries receive. Uh, and that's in, apparently in play uh, right now in the EU. We don't know exactly where it's going to go. Yes, yes. And John, uh, to bring that around then, um, and this would be something I think you would say to your own class, but it's one of the reasons I do the podcast too and reasons I choose the interviewees who I choose is, uh, I, so in 1989, I went to the Soviet Union when I was in ninth grade. So that was... That's, that's my age and that's my experience, but it's always interesting for me when I'm teaching, yes, and I bring up the Soviet Union and I mentioned Gorbachev and there's students that don't know who Gorbachev is <laughs> or was. Um, so maybe, still maybe, is. pardon? Still is, he's still, still He still is, yes. So, so, but who he, he was, I would say at that time. Um, and what are some key lessons, at least, um, I, I, and this is a very open question. I know my questions have been very broad for you, but uh, I'll let you answer it how, how you want. But what are some of the key lessons, I would say, for the Cold War and post-Cold War, or just one lesson, I guess, uh, that, that we should like remind our students to, to reflect on? Because I just feel like things are shifting and things are not shifting necessarily in a good way. Well, yes, the Cold War, you know, it's so easy to be, if you will, nostalgic about the Cold War era uh, today, and that one should not be nostalgic. It was a terrible time, and there was, there was a, a kind of constant nuclear threat that was holding over the whole world. Uh, I remember when I was in ninth grade and earlier, 
we'd have we'd have to get under our desks and you know it was called duck and cover i mean this was really a drill to what you would do in the event that there that there was a nuclear strike it was kind of absurd obviously the idea that you could go under your desk and protect yourself against nuclear war uh, was a little bit ridiculous so we shouldn't get nostalgic about the cold war however uh, <clears throat> i do think that uh, there was one big uh, lesson of that period, which is that collective security and transatlantic cooperation uh, between the US and, and the evolving European uh, world was absolutely critical. And collective security in the form of NATO um, in that context uh, it, it made it possible for the democratic uh, West to maintain its stance vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the Soviet Union. Now, at the same time, you know, I traveled to the Soviet Union as well a number of times during the time of the Cold War. And it was very important to keep open those communication links. Uh, you know, I, I was I went there on a number of occasions. I went there as a young lawyer uh, because that in, in the period of Gorbachev in particular, when things were changing, the lawyers in the Soviet Union, the, some of the dissident lawyers wanted to learn more from American lawyers about the origins of the Bill of Rights and, and the way in which we defended civil rights and civil liberties in the United States. And, and how we held accountable uh, our leaders, people like Richard Nixon. I, when I was a young lawyer in the American Civil Liberties Union, I was involved in uh, basically some of the work that was done around the impeachment process of, of uh, Richard Nixon. And that was, you know, under the rule of law within a framework of human rights, we were able to hold accountable a, a leader. And the Russians wanted to know about that, the, these Russian lawyers. How did you do that? Earlier, I'd been involved in a cultural exchange involving singing groups that were uh, meeting both in the United States. I mean, Russians coming to the U.S. and the U.S. groups going to the to the Soviet Union. So while I bring that up to say that uh, <laughs> these great geopolitical confrontations uh, should not get in the way of uh, citizen engagement. And um, in fact, going all the way back to, to my first point when, I, when we started this interview and I was telling you about my father defending against people who were accused of being communist, um, you know, that nothing is wor could be worse than having uh, a country where it's impossible to meet with citizens of another country because you get accused, if that other country is your enemy, of somehow encouraging the enemy, which is sort of what was happening in the McCarthy period. So that, that's a big Cold War uh, lesson. On the one hand, collective security and very strong alliance. On the other hand, uh, citizen engagement. So the post-Cold War uh, lesson, I would say for me at least in particular, <clears throat> is understanding uh, that just because it looks possible to make everything get better and democracy to be expanded and uh, integration to occur doesn't mean that the forces of disintegration aren't going to get in the way. And we saw they did in Yugoslavia and that was a huge lesson. So 
equally powerful integration and disintegration forces are always at work uh, in the world. And, and they certainly have been in the post-Cold War world. I think as far as the United States is concerned, I think one big lesson is the, uh, you have to watch out for the hubris of hegemony, to use two yes, big words. Yes. And I think US, the US became very hubristic uh, in the period, maybe understandably so, around the attacks, the 9-11 attacks, which were horrific and nothing had ever happened like this in the United States before. And the response to the 9-11 attacks uh, was a great assertion of, uh, and a, I think, you know, dangerous one in that sense of US hegemonic power. And somehow the, the idea that it would be possible to fundamentally change a country by uh, bringing democracy from the outside, in the case of Iraq, overthrowing Saddam Hussein uh, and other U.S. interventions, uh, Afghanistan, et cetera. The, these, these, you know, the U.S. has to be aware of the limits of its power, and not just the U.S., but any country uh, that is uh, in a capacity, in a, in a, in able to exercise that kind of military power. So I think that's that was a, that was a huge uh, lesson as well. Um, and then finally, I would say today, uh, in order to defend democracy and human rights, we need to understand some of the forces that are at work that are causing people to question democracy and human rights. And this is where the populism and nationalism issues come in. We have to understand those better and respond to them. We can't simply fight them. Uh, this is how people feel. People are there are fearful, and how, how do you how do you deal with fear? But there are many ways in which they can be made to be fearful. Disinformation and propaganda, and all of the dangers that are out there today that that promote fear and populism and attacks on human rights and voting rights in the United States, for example. Anyway, we need to we need to work on all of those. So those are those are a bunch of lessons I would call bring to both uh, the Cold War period and the post-Cold War period. No, excellent, excellent lessons. I mean, extensive, but each one has, has its different level where it's important from the individual to the, I would say, nation state level. So right. excellent, excellent. Okay, John, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Great. Well, good. And good luck with your podcast. I would like to provide a brief conclusion to this interview with John. As you've heard, the ability to ensure respect for human rights is essential for our democracies. And I want to be clear, we are not singling out any one country, because even the United States, which was perceived to be a bastion of democracy, is falling short in the last few decades. Somehow, the strive to ensure continual democratic improvement has fallen by the wayside in today's politics. This has had a knock-on effect in other countries and justification for their own political actions that don't respect human rights. And now in Europe, we are threatened with war once again. Maybe it's because I'm physically so close that this ramifications, the ramifications are more apparent. But it is clear that the international trade that tied together countries is unraveling. This connection with the EU and Russia, this gas bridge that was built during the Soviet period, it seems to be going by the wayside. Changes in the energy system have wider political impacts. It appears that conflict, and not just political conflict, that's contained within a country, 
but actually the international conflict between countries may become an acceptable course of action for some countries. And I just don't say that about Russia. But other countries and their politicians that ratchet up the pressure and the ideology, the nationalism, to sustain the threat or actual conflict between people could turn into a new practice threatening international peace and security. But what does this mean in terms of the energy transition? For me, the takeaway from the interview is by creating stronger societies in both our social and political connections, we can build societies that are more just and in turn build energy systems that are affordable for all sections of society. And importantly too, an energy system that does not depend on the political leanings of a country and whether they turn a blind eye to the deterioration and even destruction of international peace. And with that, thank you for listening to this week's episode.